commission is still golden out there. And a lot of people are attracted to the financial services industry because, you know, there's not a lot of places in Canada where regular people can make hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars a year. Um, and often with fairly little overhead and startup costs. The first is what we might call a suitability standard. And that is really, in my mind, uh, it's a very common standard out there. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's, uh, when I describe this, I, I'm not necessarily saying that it's bad, but a consumer does need to be aware that the suitability standard is, is in my opinion, a fairly low standard. Up until a couple of years ago, um, the word the words financial advisor or financial planner were, were not regulated expressions. How's my financial health, Doc? Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for Healthcare Professionals where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. Hey guys and girls, this episode we are going to be talking about, again, the idea of fiduciary duty. As healthcare providers, we always act in the best interest of our patients. I'm not sure that I can say the same about providers in the financial industry. As people who don't have much financial literacy, and I'm the first one to admit that, and I've taken a long time to learn what I've learned and now uh, putting it out there on podcast. It has taken me a long time to do it and I've made many, many mistakes and I'm hoping you guys don't make the same mistakes. But this is because of the fact that there are players in the financial industry that do not have our best interest in mind. And so today, today I'm going to be talking with someone who in one way sort of criticized that as well and also telling us how we need to be careful. And so I'm having this conversation with him so that we understand a little bit how to protect ourselves. I hope that you enjoy this podcast and that you also reflect on it and see how you better protect yourself against some of those players in the industry that do not have our best interest in mind. Welcome everybody to the How Is My Financial Health Talk podcast and I am your host Vuka Tran. I am very uh, happy today and delighted to have uh, my guest on today. His name is uh, Rod Barillo, and um, I'll introduce to you Rod uh, in just a minute more formally. But I, I'm I'm really excited to have this conversation because we're going to be talking about finance, but from a very different uh, viewpoint or maybe angle. And this is the angle of you know with a bit of ethics, with a bit of uh, accounting with a bit of law into it, 
um, which is something we haven't really done on this podcast. But you understand at the end uh, why why we're why we are uh, recording this podcast and why I want the audience to sort of reflect on it. Um, this podcast is really meant for. A reflection uh, as a consumer, you know, what what are the things that we should be looking for and how do we navigate through this financial industry? So the the guest that I have on today, his name is uh, Rod Barillo. Uh, Rod has been uh, writing and speaking on the topics of ethics and wealth for over 30 years. His unique, his unique perspective are the results of an unusual background as a philosopher, as a award-winning financial advisor, as a Buddhist leader, as a financial services executive, and as a consultant to entrepreneur. Um, Rod has a very interesting uh, background in terms of how he pursued his career. During his undergraduate and postgraduate baccalaureate studies at the University of Toronto and Simon Fraser University, he focused on jurisprudence and applied ethics, including research in medical ethics. Upon graduation, very curiously, he entered into the financial services industry as a stockbroker's assistant and became a colonist, writing on topics of business and financial ethics. After that, he uh, pursued a career uh, taking him through every major sector of the financial services industry in a wide variety of roles, from frontline to retail sales to branch management to chief compliance officer and director. Uh, professionally, Mr. Barillo went to, on to establish one of Canada's first exempt market uh, dealerships, which became part of Canada's largest and best-known private equity dealerships. He served as a chief compliance officer and director before ex exiting in 2012. So that is a very, very long, uh, illustrious career, and it's still not over yet. He's still writing, and he's still very active. Um Mr. Barillo, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Um, may I correct one element of the introduction? Oh, what did I say wrong? Please go ahead. That's okay. It was the University of Calgary and not the University of Toronto. Did I say Toronto? You did. Yeah, that's okay. That, that oh, my be God. A, a it is the understandable bias. <laughs> and, <laughs> it I'm is the University of Calgary. Yeah, and imagining that you have a number of doctors that listen to your podcast. So um, to clarify, that was the Health Science Institute, where I studied postgraduate level biomedical ethics, which is now just part of Foothills Hospital. And I think that's where the, the doctors do their medical training these days. But that goes back to about 1985 or so when I was doing that. Very well. Thank you for correcting me. And uh, that is a lapse in, in mind. Um, I don't know why I said Toronto, maybe because it is a center of the world. Yes, um, maybe. <laughs> I'm I'm from Montreal, by the way. So Toronto okay. has never been the the center of the world for me until I moved here. Very good. So um, I'm very happy to have you on today because I've listened to a podcast of one of my friend Dimitri, and he was uh, speaking with you about you know financial advisors and you know the ethics behind the work that they do. Uh, and then uh, he talked about your book. You wrote the book called The Wealthy Buddhist. Um, and so when did you write that book? I believe that uh, came out in 2019. So I was probably writing it in 2018. Uh, but the, uh, the writing on that, it was really a combination of essays and lectures. Um, I speak internationally, and so I've been gathering up 
pieces that I thought would work for a book for quite a while prior to that. So I would call it, you know, a, a writing and compilation, I think in 2018 and then published in 2019. Perfect. So let's uh, maybe talk about the book later because I want to dive into uh, a question and then we'll come back to the book and we'll wrap up with, you know, some message that you may have for us. Uh, is that okay? Yeah, that sounds great. So as consumer and I'm a consumer and a lot of the physicians are consumers of the financial industry. And for many of us, we like, some of us like to do DIY and some of us don't. And we feel kind of lost because finances and personal finances is not typically what we studied. So we go and we seek the help of financial advisors, financial planners, but it seems like a very complicated system for many of us and we don't understand and so when we um, approach these experts in the financial industry uh, how should we navigate this and what should be what should we be looking for when we're working with a financial advisor maybe just some general big strokes of, of ideas and then we'll drill down on some more particular um, topics that sounds good. Uh, first, I want to comment on your comment that it seems complicated. It is, in fact, complicated. Um, Canada has a patchwork of regulatory bodies, um, self-regulatory organizations, professional associations, and different types of uh, financial services participants might be subject to different types of organizations where the principles might be similar, but certainly some of the rules are different codes of ethics are different. There's a, a variety of differences. And so just because a, a person is a financial services participant, uh, one wouldn't know exactly what regulatory body was overseeing them. It's not a united uh, activity in Canada by a long shot. And in my chief compliance officer roles had forced me to have to even become aware of province by province variations and various rules. And it's complicated for us that, that have spent our whole career doing it. I don't know how anybody else would possibly figure it all out. So the first thing is to, I guess one of the first messages is, is it is quite complicated and one shouldn't feel bad if it appears to be complicated, it, it, it in fact is. Um, the second part of your initial question was, you know, what should consumers, you know, broad brushstrokes be aware of? I think there's a general concern that I've had that consumers often, I believe, overestimate the responsibility of financial services participants. They, they think that they're, go they're going to be held to a standard of care or responsibility that they're not, in fact, um, subject to. And so it, it can be us having certain expectations about the abilities or the integrity of those people, and then ultimately might be disappointed in the experience we have when we engage with them. I've always, you know, had the idea, or at least in my mind, that when I go to a financial expert, whether it's a broker, an advisor, you know, I'm working with this person, with this expert, my expectations is that, you know, they're telling me what I should do because it's best for me or one of the best for me. And, and I'm relying on this person to, to make a decision. Um, and I, I probably, because I equate this to medicine where in medicine, we, I think most of the time, uh, and obviously in every professions, there are some black sheep. So I'm, we're not going to talk about that, but 
you know, in general, I think physicians act uh, in the patient's best interest and provide recommendations, whether it's a surgical treatment or whether it's a medication in the patient's best interest. So we sort of accept that from the world and maybe it is uh, unrealistic. Yeah, I I think that's probably the case. I think you've hit the the nail on the head. Uh, I'd like to um, speak to one of the elements of your last comment. You said a broker or financial advisor, et cetera. And one of the challenges we have in Canada is um, the relevance or the meaningfulness of titles of participants in the financial services industry. There's has been a great deal of discussion. I'd even call it concern. And the regulators have started to try to encourage changes in this regard about the use of titles to suggest that an advisor has more skills or ability or responsibility than they in fact have. So, you know, a common example that that we've talked about in the past, and this has been going on for years, is somebody maybe working at a large financial services company being called a vice president, and they give them the title. And in fact, there's a whole ton of vice presidents there. Everybody's a vice president. And unfortunately, it can confuse a consumer as to the level of ability or responsibility of that person. So just recently, there's been some efforts by the regulators to to encourage um, titles that are more reflective of the exact nature of the role or position. Um, And another one in that regard that's really important and also timely is the use of the word advisor itself. Up until a couple of years ago, um, the Word finance, the words financial advisor or financial planner were, were not regulated expressions. And that meant that really a lot of very different types of people could call themselves those things. And it, it didn't really mean anything. Now, in the last couple of years, there's been an effort in Canada called title protection as the, the words that, that the advisors are using. It's come out of Ontario. And the concept was we're going to uh, regulate those expressions, certain expressions. And we're going to require that anybody that wants to use an expression like a financial advisor, that they've completed very specific pre-approved programs. And the the entities that are providing them with financial planning credentials are pre-approved by regulatory bodies. And this didn't happen before. So there's people running around calling themselves things and consumers being confused and thinking that people are going to do things for them or can do things that they, in fact, cannot do at all. Um, But let's talk about responsibility type stuff for a moment. And please interrupt me at any point if you want to want to ask a question, of course. I often and I think I I use this metaphor in the book um, to help a consumer understands and prepare themselves, have the right expectation is to let's draw a metaphor between a financial advisor and someone like we'll call them a personal trainer. If a a consumer talks to somebody who is a professional personal trainer, a physical trainer, you would expect that the the trainer would pay them, would charge them an hourly rate. They would ask them if they've talked to their doctor, they might suggest a wide range of activities uh, appropriate for that person, yoga, swimming, weightlifting, whatever it is, buying, buying a bike or something like that. And you would expect that the, the trainer is, is, has, let's call it a more holistic approach. And I think a lot of consumers go to financial services people thinking that they're like a trainer, but in fact, they're more like a bike salesperson. And the best metaphor is to think of you walked into a bike store 
And you might wish that that person was able to and educated enough to talk about nutrition or whatever else. Or you might hope that they would say, hey, a bike's not right for you. You should go down and see my buddy down the street that has, you know, walking shoes or something like that or a yoga studio. But in fact, what they're there to do is to sell you a bike. And in fact, there may be a very limited number of bikes there, whatever they have in stock. They only deal with certain suppliers. Oh, and lo and behold, the bike salesman might have been encouraged by his manager to get rid of last year's stock and maybe give him a little bit of extra commission or something like that if he gets rid of those bikes. And I, I would suggest that that's a really useful comparison. Most financial services people that regular people run into are much more like bike salespeople than they are like personal trainers. And the, the num one of the first messages, you've got to set the right expectations when you go into those types of communications. If you need a trainer, actually find a trainer and don't expect that out of a bike salesperson. Okay, first of all, that is an amazing analogy. And second of all, it it really destroys what I originally thought of what an advisor is, right? Um, and and here's why I say that. I speak to a lot to my a lot to my colleagues. And you know, when we come into a concept, a financial concept or a solution or whatever, the first few sentences that come out of their mouths is, let me ask, let me ask my accountant or let me ask my uh, advisor. Uh, and so in our minds as physicians and maybe consumers in general, we think of our accountants and advisors and, and brokers as more than what they actually are. So we think of them as a trainer, not a bike salesman. And what you're saying to me, and at least what, what I'm hearing is we need to know who we're dealing with. But to a consumer who's not familiar in this space, uh, who's the, and in, in this space that is extremely complicated and complex, and trying to understand what the word advisor mean in general, how do we navigate that? What What type of tips do you have for us? Well, and that's where you have to look past whatever title or role that the this I'm, you keep saying advisor, and I, I'd rather use the word financial services participant or something else, because within that broad category, there are people that that can be legitimately called advisors. And with this title protection, you know, they're required to have completed a specific, um, let's call it quote unquote, professional designation, like a common one in Canada is called a CFP designation. And there's there's more than one, but that that's the one that I used to carry myself many years ago. I don't do that work anymore, so I didn't keep it up. But you know, there was a fairly robust amount of work that needed to be done. There's continuing education. And there's at least a sense that, that the person is more like a personal trainer dealing with a variety of topics. And, and some of those charge an hourly rate rather than being compensated for you know, purchases of products or services. And so they, they would feel a lot more like that. So one of the things that consumers should do is they just got to drill down a little bit and, and get a better understanding of, do they have a, a kind of professional designation that would at least theoretically enable them to act more like a trainer than a bike salesperson? But here's the other piece to it. It's the nature of their environment as well. You know, so for example, if you walked into a typical bank in Canada, you might still run into people that, you know, maybe rightly or wrongly, and depending on the province, are calling themselves a financial advisor. 
But of course, we wouldn't expect them to do anything else that, but sell us the products that that bank offers. And, you know, that's very, I feel like that to me feels a lot more like a bike salesman. I've got these products. I'm not going to send you across the street to my competitor or somebody else. You know, I'm just going to sell you what I've got, what I'm told to sell you. And so understanding the environment and, and where this goes, actually, Vu, is there are certain types of financial services people in Canada that are more independent and therefore more likely to be able to choose from a much wider range of products and services that they can bring to their client. And at least it presents the possibility that they can, you know, provide that wider range of things that the consumer might need and be less limited to just selling bikes, for example. And to extend that metaphor, maybe it's more like a sports equipment store where there's bikes and weights, you know, and yoga mats and a variety of different things. And, and maybe at nighttime, they do some classes in there to show you how to, to work the equipment and so on. You know, something that feels more like they have a wider range of solutions for your problems. And there are certainly good advisors out there that can do that. So, okay, so let me drill down into the question a little bit more. I'm, uh, I spend my entire day, you know, dealing with people and caring for people and operating and whatnot. And now I'm ready to, you know, deal with my personal finance. Any tips you would have, I mean, other than the setting, any tips you would have for us to say, well, I'm dealing with the bike salesman or versus I'm dealing with this gentleman who sells bikes and yoga mats and, and, and gym balls versus, you know, I'm dealing with the other person who deals with the full spectrum of the financial planning services. Any quick tips that you have for someone like myself or someone like in my audience and say, you know what, I'm I'm still quite confused. I, I can't tell the difference of who's who. You mentioned um, uh, one designation, which is a CFP. Uh, are there other designations that we should be paying attention to if we wanted to find those type of of people or participants? Yeah, one of the other designations that I'm fairly familiar with is an RFP, and that's registered financial planner. Um, there is a PFP designation out there that I'm not as familiar with. Um, my sense of it, and I don't want to get into trouble with any professional association. So I can just as my opinion or my life experience is that the the CFPs and the RFP designation holders that I have personally met have been amongst some of the people that I would talk to personally. And so I'm not saying anything negative about anybody else, but the ones that I've found are those. And a great number of them are in environments that are that allow for a very wide range of products and services to be provided to a client. So I would ask them that, what kind of designation do you have? Tell me about that. And, and then, you know, don't expect that they're going to say it's, they might say it's the best in Canada or not. You might have to do a little bit of looking into what are considered to be the appropriate ones, but those are two of the more common ones that I'm familiar with. There's another type of question though, that a person should be thinking about, and it's, and, and this is getting a little technical, but it's important. And I would ask this question is what registration or licenses does the this person have, this financial services person have? Because there is a, a wide range of registration categories in Canada. For example, a mutual fund salesperson has a certain type of registration category that doesn't typically allow them to sell other types of investments. If the only registration they have is a mutual fund dealers reg registration category, you know, technically speaking, they're limited to that product line. Now, a number of mutual fund representatives also keep a life insurance license that would allow them to sell life insurance products. 
But again, those are just two very small categories of the entire world of possibilities out there. So by their license or registration, they're not supposed to talk about other things. It also means that their obligation to the consumer is uh, you know, of the lower categories relative to other types of categories. So let me give you another example. On the other end of the spectrum, we have a registration category in Canada called a portfolio manager. That registration could be from a provincial regulator or it could be from IROC, which is a national self-regulatory body. But a portfolio manager is a very special kind of registration category for two reasons. One, that person uh, has advanced education, advanced experience. They, this is considered to be a very high category. The regulators approve these people very, very carefully. It often takes several years to be a portfolio manager. And the reason that they're so careful is that these people have discretionary ability over a person's investments. Because they have that discretion, they also have a fiduciary duty. They're one of the very few types of registrations. And in fact, off the top of my head, the only one I can think of. So I don't want to say that there's none out there. But as far as I know, it's the only registration category that the mere fact that you're registered as a portfolio manager means you have a fiduciary duty. The word fiduciary duty is very important. Can you explain what that means and how does that portray uh, in the real world? Yeah, so the way a portfolio manager might... Um, fulfill that obligation is by being able to choose from a very wide range of possible investments or call them securities and bring the right combination of securities together that serves the need of the client and that absolutely has the client's interests before all other interests. And so there's some reasons that that can happen in that environment. One of them is because the portfolio manager has the ability to select from a very wide range of securities, they can do it. And the other reason is typically because of the business model. A portfolio manager typically just charges a percentage of all the assets under management. So let's just say it's 1%. And, and by the way, I deal with a portfolio manager that charges less than that, much less. And I've also worked with portfolio managers in Canada as uh, investment review committee member and um, a resource for them as part of my consulting, where they charge much more than 1%. But if you have a billion dollars under management, and you're just charging that pool of money 1%, the, you're going to make the 1% no matter what. So you don't go, well, I'm going to put this security in there instead of this one, because I'm going to get paid more or less. You're not, your income's not going to change. You get paid the 1%. And it's your fiduciary duty to select the best collection of securities that serves the need of that client at that time. So it's a combination of responsibility, regulatory status, and business model. But there's other and there's other other types of uh, professional uh, sorry financial services people out there, and most of them don't have a responsibility anywhere near that. Can you describe that a little bit then? Um, sure. So if if these participants do not, they don't have to fulfill that level of uh, standard. So what what level of standard are they operating by? Yeah, that's a great question. There's normally two expressions that kind of capture all that. The first is what we might call a suitability standard. And that is really, in my mind, uh, it's a very common standard out there. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's, uh, when I describe this, I, I'm not necessarily saying that it's bad, but a consumer does need to be aware that the suitability standard is, is 
in my opinion, a fairly low standard. And it goes like this. All I have to do as a financial services person is determine, is this suitable for you? Not is it the best, not is it the, the cheapest, but coming back to like the bike salesperson, let's say the bike salesperson, you come in and say, hey, is I'm thinking about buying a bike. What bike is suitable for me? Well, you know, can you ride a bike? Do you, do you, you know, are you physically able to do that? Would you prefer a, you know, a traditional, you know, quote unquote, female style design or male style design? You know, what's the right size for you? You know, so I'm trying to find you a bike that's suitable. Yeah, it's suitable. It doesn't mean it's the best. It doesn't mean you should buy it. It doesn't mean it's a good deal. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing yoga instead. It doesn't mean any of those things. It's it's just, hey, of what I've got in the store, it doesn't even, it doesn't even mean that I'm going to go out and look at every bike in the world and figure out which is right for you. It just means of these bikes I have in the store, you know, is this is this suitable? Is this okay? Yeah, that's okay. That, that's it. That's the end of the standard. And you know, there's a, a great, great number of advisors in Canada, or I, should, I shouldn't call them advisors, financial services people that are not subject to anything beyond a suitability standard. Now, what's, what's the other standard that's often discussed, and which is where the regulators are trying to move the industry to, is let's call it a best interest standard. And so in the last couple of years, we've had a significant number of um, reforms, client-focused reforms is what it's been called, or CFR, that have rolled out in a couple of ways. And these client-focused reforms are a lot about bringing the industry towards a best interest standard. And sometimes it's hard to see how those different standards actually play out in a, a particular set of circumstances. But a best, best interest standard is more in that the financial services person is supposed to put the best interests of the client first. And where that plays out is things like disclosing conflict of interest. Um, if I'm a bike salesperson with the best interest standard, I should probably show them, you know, if two bikes are the, rough, roughly the same, more or less, I shouldn't show them the one necessarily that pays me more commission. I should be able to say it's in the best interest of the client that they buy this other bike because they're going to save $100, even if that means I get paid less commission. Now, that, that's definitely an improvement. But it doesn't say that putting the client's best interest means you have to have the world of products and services available to them and you're going to pick the best one out there. It just means managing certain conflicts of interest um, when you're presenting the, those products or services to a client. It's an improvement, but it's a very long way off from fiduciary standard, in my opinion. Coming back to your example of the bike salesman, so with a best interest standard, if if we were to apply that uh, level of, of standard, maybe the bike salesman would say, you know what, Vu, you're not even you're not even eligible or suitable for the bike. Maybe you should do, I don't know, uh, core strengthening because of X Y Z issues. The bike is not even suitable for you, right? So is that is that a, a good analogy of what a best interest can also look like? I, I would say that, that that does happen like that. It's supposed to happen like that. A, a financial services person is supposed to be prepared, I think, not, not only from a regulatory perspective, but from an ethics perspective, to say no to a client and turn away business. Does that happen? I'm sure it does. Um, I do wonder sometimes if maybe it should happen more often. 
you know, part of the challenge in our industry, and, and one of the reasons it's worthy of criticism is a vast majority of those financial services people out there, uh, I shouldn't say a vast majority, a, a meaningful majority that you might run into are on commission. And so you might wish that they would say, don't buy my products, I think you should go elsewhere. But if they tell that to, to everybody, or if they're not attracting enough people, they're not getting paid. You know, say, unlike a physician, where you come in, you talk to your client, you many of you are going to get paid either way. If you tell them you don't need to see me for, you know, six months or a year, then, then that's good. You don't get paid. You got paid to, to provide that message. Financial services people that are on commission are not paid if they say, go away, don't buy my product or service. So I, I, I do, do think that that should be there. And I do see more of that. But it does open up the possibility that unless there's changes in the business model as well, you know, that, that says, hey, you should get paid this. Well, I'm not saying you should. If it's possible for a financial services person to get paid, whether you buy a product or not, that's probably going to be in the best interest of the consumer. But the industry is a very long way away from that. Now, there are financial services people out there that do what's called fee-based or fee-only services, and there's variations out there. So a fee-only might be, hey, Vu, I'm going to charge you $500 an hour, and it's going to take us uh, 10 hours to get you organized, and then we're going to meet you know, once a year, and I'm just going to charge you, and you're going to pay, but you know now that I'm not trying to sell you anything because I'm not going to get paid anywhere else. That is a business model that's out there, uh, fee-only. Fee-based might be, hey, I'm going to charge you to do a financial plan, but if you implement the plan with me, then I'm going to rebate you some of those fees as we implement. And they start to become this combination of a fee for service as well as compensation for selling other products and services. You know, so they, there are possible possibilities out there for consumers to find, you know, let's call them financial services people that are maybe a little bit more objective. Um, but commission is still golden out there. And a lot of people are attracted to the financial services industry because, you know, there's not a lot of places in Canada where regular people can make hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars a year. Um, and often with fairly little overhead and startup costs, you know, and often, I mean, you guys have to invest a lot of money and time into an education. The educational threshold for a lot of people in financial services industry is pretty low. So is there a, a regulatory step to move towards maybe more education moving forward? Yeah, there, there has been um, discussions out there about whether or not certain financial planning designations should require a university degree. And parts of the accounting industry went through that, a, you know, let's call it a generation ago. Uh, the CMAs, for example, which don't exist anymore, Chartered Management Accountants, they got rolled up into with the CAs and the CGAs to become the CPA designation. But originally, the C CMAs did not require a university degree. And then at some point, they decided to make that a minimum standard. Uh, there is a designation in Canada in the accounting space called PBA. Um, sometimes, depending on the province, that's either professional business accountant or um, professional, or what's the other one, public business accountant. And they do not require a university degree, but they do require sufficient education, often college level, as an introduction to that accounting thing. So in the financial services space, it's not normal that anybody historically was required to have a degree. 
And in fact, uh, there was an instance where I was speaking uh, in Toronto and uh, it was mostly panels. This is a pretty high end conference. I was one of a couple of keynote speakers there. And the panel right before I got on stage was discussing the merits or lack of merits of having someone have to have a, a university degree. And one of the things the person said is, and they actually said this, well, you know, what good is a philosophy degree? You know, why would we, you know, even think that that's uh, any kind of indication of appropriate person in the industry? And I got up on stage and I said, well, by the way, I have a philosophy degree and you don't find a lot of people with business degrees that study ethics and so on the way I do. So I had that kind of humorous opportunity to, to participate in that conversation. Most people are not required. And, and if you ask my general opinion, I'd say, you know, you don't really need a university degree. You know, you, you know there's plenty of training out there um, other than it helps you with other, other things like being able to converse with professionals and, you know, being maybe better with communication skills or what have you. But, the, you know, having many university degrees, I don't think would make anyone a better financial services person. But it might make them a better person, but not necessarily better at that job. That's, we're currently not there yet. And I'm, I'm, I think we're probably a long way off of that kind of thing as being a requirement. Every physician could have a list of questions. And, you know, just like if you were looking for a romantic partner, you might have that list in your head of things that, you know, your minimum criteria. And you could have that of a financial services person say, hey, did you go to university? What did you study? You know, and, it, you know, does that do we click on those things? Sometimes liberal arts background people bring a very different perspective to these activities. And that that might be great. You know, you, you might have a better experience with a person like that, but you can always ask them. Absolutely. I mean, uh, even in my profession as physicians, we we're not we don't all come from the same mold. Uh, some of us come from a science background. Other people come from an engineering background. And I've I've had a few people come from uh, the arts and philosophy background, and we all bring our own little expertise and our own little ways of, you know, figuring out the same problem. So I, I think that diversity diversity even within a profession is good. You mentioned earlier, you know, things that consumers can look for. Obviously, the designation. The second thing you mentioned was the setting, the, the and what framework you're you're seeing this financial um, uh, participant. Um, the other thing you mentioned was okay. How about the the business model? What business model are you working on for your services? Anything else? Big again, big things, general things. That one more thing that uh, a consumer can can look for or, or try to assess. One of the things on that list, since you're doing a recap, was also the registration and licensing of the of the financial services person. That's right. Yeah. Oh, so so registration and licensing versus designation are separate things. Correct. Yeah. You can you can have completed a financial planning designation, but unless you are approved by certain regulators to sell certain products, you're not supposed to sell those products. And those so in Canada, for example life insurance and disability insurance licenses and so on are done by province by province. A mutual fund is a national body, which just rolled up with the IROC body, which looks after people like stockbrokers and certain types of investment advisors. But then there's provincial regulatory uh, oversight on different other different types of roles. So when I was a chief compliance officer, for example, that was granted by a various provinces. So like the Alberta Securities Commission would be an example of a provincial securities regulator. But to, to answer your question, what else might we look at? You know, there's nothing wrong with asking a colleague, 
or a knowledgeable person, you know, like yourself or, or a leader within your profession, hey, who, who, who have you been using? Who do we recommend? Or, you know, maybe one of the things that physicians could get together and do is, is have a bit of a screening process and uh, criteria and, and, you know, maybe see if there's certain advisors out there that fit that criteria that they're looking for. You know, I hesitate to say like a, a checklist or an approved list, but, you know, there's probably, you know, something like that that could be useful. But I would always go out and ask somebody, you know, do you, do you deal with a financial services person? How long have you been with them? Do they specialize in doctors? Do they get, you know, do they get us? Do they get what our self-employed life might look like and those kinds of things and, and look for recommendations and then maybe interview, you know, at least three of them to see if it's a fit. We've, uh, we've exhausted this topic quite a bit. And so thank you very much. I want to come back to your book, if you don't mind. Tell us a little bit about the wealthy Buddhist. Um, I know that there's a lot of, you know, ethics and philosophy behind this book. So coming back to what we've just talked about, how, how does your book talk about those topics and how do they relate to each other? Yeah, so part of my motivation behind the, the wealthy Buddhist was a, a belief that I have that some people think that uh, to be successful financially, they need to give up you know, ethics or they need to set some of their integrity aside that, um, you know, that, that financial success somehow doesn't include ethics. And I wanted, you know, part of the book is creating an argument to show uh, you know, younger people or other people that are looking to transition into self-employed environments that, um, you know, not only do you not have to give up ethics or your, your certain, you know, disposition or ideals, but in fact, including ethics can make you more successful. And uh, the argument that I make within the book is, is proposing that by thinking of business in terms of solving problems for people, uh, by making their lives better, by, you know, a Buddhist expression might be reducing suffering and increasing happiness, um, that if you do that and you're compensated appropriately for that value you give them, you can become quite wealthy doing that. And if your wealth is created by improving people's lives, and I say that's true of many physicians, then there, you know, don't be apologetic for becoming wealthy. In fact, you know, use that as, as an example of how much good you've done. Um, and so that was part of the message within the book. In, in Buddhist philosophy, there's one of the kind of premises, if you will, or one of the initial concepts is called right livelihood. And so basically I expanded on this concept within the book and include livelihood is not just about how you make the money, but how then you spend the money. Because if, if I'm engaged in a right livelihood and I'm making people's lives better and I become wealthy doing that, then I maybe also have an obligation to spend my money only on those services and products that are making my life better because it's helping other people run ethical businesses. So for example, I, I might wonder about certain types of products, cigarettes are an off, you know, a classic one that, 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 that is a type of industry that, that arguably doesn't improve quality of life. Um, you might say the same thing about soft drinks and, um, some other products out there that they're successful businesses, but are they making people's lives, you know, objectively better or not? And it's, it's a question I raise within the book. Uh, some of the things I deal with in the book, um, there's chapter nine, for example, is called 
is the financial services industry trustworthy? And I approach this from a you know, specific perspective on what trustworthy means. It means the ability and the integrity to fulfill the value proposition that you've communicated. And, and it sounds technical, but it's basically saying that there's certain people out there will give a consumer the impression they can do certain things for them, uh, but they don't in fact have the ability and or the integrity to deliver that. And it calls into question their trustworthiness. Can I give you a kind of an interesting example that might surprise some people? Absolutely. Um, back about 2007 or eight or so, I was uh, on a speaking circuit on a, on a paper that I'd written called Move It or Lose It. And I was talking about the, the, the belief that I had the market was going to correct and correct sharply, which it actually did. And when the last time I did a speech on that, I was in Las Vegas at a big conference and the very next day, Lehman Brothers actually announced their bankruptcy, and that kind of set things into free fall for a while. But the reason I bring this up is when I was on that speaking circuit, I had a lot of people in the audience that were financial services people. And a lot of those people really didn't like my message that the market looked like it was ready for a very significant decline. And here's one of the reasons I think they didn't like it, Vu, is because they didn't know what they were going to do with that information. And now that they have the information, and if their hands were tied, and I'm going to explain to you a minute why many actually have their hands tied, then they've got kind of a moral problem. They now have some information and they can't actually act on it. So I'll give you an example. Let's suppose you're a traditional mutual fund salesperson in Canada and you buy a mutual fund from this person. And you might, even if they don't say it openly, you might believe that part of the value proposition is that they're going to let you know when it's time to get out of these mutual funds. That, hey, if the market's high, that, you know, their job is to help you buy low and sell high, right? Theoretically, although, you know, we as consumers think that that must be in there because everybody talks about that. And then what actually we can find out is that the system itself doesn't even permit that value proposition. And I'll explain to you why. A typical mutual fund salesperson would have to call every single client. They'd have to get in front of them. They can't act without the client's authorization. Very often that's written authorization. So now maybe you're a mutual fund salesperson. You think the market's going to correct because you heard some you know, goof like me say something like that at, at a conference. And now what do you do? Are you going to contact hundreds and hundreds of clients, meet with every single one of them, get authorization to move them out of one mutual fund, let's say an equity fund into something like a money market fund and wait for the market to drop? You, you physically can't get to everybody. So who do you pick? Well, you might call, you might do your own account, your parents, your friends, maybe some of the biggest clients, maybe some of the people that are not the biggest clients, but they have a bunch of money elsewhere. So you want to try to you know, service them so you can get that money. But the likelihood that you're going to get to everybody is extraordinarily unlikely to the point where it might even be impossible in a timely manner. Because the market now is, it, it might take you two or three months to do that. And the market's going to drop in, in the course of a month. You can't physically do it. Here's another problem. Most mutual fund salespeople are compensated in, with including a form of trailer. A trailer is the money sitting there, for example, in a mutual fund paying me out a monthly amount. If I move them from an equity fund to a money market fund, Money market funds typically don't pay a trailer. Not only can I not get to everybody, if I do happen to do that, I would literally be cutting, cutting my monthly income down significantly because I'm giving up that trailer portion. And just to move them back again and maybe get the trailer. So the, that environment forces me to give up a huge amount of income and do a ton of work 
And, and what if I'm wrong? And, and let me throw another thing out there. Every time I call a client and recommend a change, I'm incurring risk because I could be wrong. Um, the you know, client may come back and say, gee, the market didn't correct. And I've been sitting in a money market fund now. I, I lost out on 10% growth because I wasn't in the market, all those things. So you incur risk, which is fine. But if you don't have any offsetting business opportunity or income, no business person is going to incur risk without a possible reward. It doesn't make sense as a business model. So here you have the situation where consumers, I think, believe that these financial services people are going to let them know if they hear the market's going to drop, but the environment around them actually doesn't permit them to fill, to fill that perceived value proposition. They're stuck. And in fact, one of the reasons I like the portfolio manager model so much is because they act with discretion, they don't have to call all their clients. It's they with their fiduciary duty, if they think that the market's going to drop and everybody should be rebalanced to a conservative position, they just go do that. And depending on the model, they can do everybody. Some of these guys can do and gals can do everybody at the exact same time with computers today. And so they're in a model where they could actually fulfill the value proposition of changing very quickly the, the portfolio uh, as it you know is required by the changing economic or market circumstances. But I got to tell you, the vast majority of people in Canada can't do that. And it's okay if consumers recognize that they're all limited, but I don't think consumers realize that. So we, we come back to this value proposition and trustworthiness and them actually not being able to do the things that we think that they're going to do for us. So you pose a, you pose a really good conundrum for, for consumers who, one, are not very familiar with industry and, and definitely not the nuance that we just described here. What are we to do then? I, you know, ask different questions. Um, be, be forewarned that there are certain types of financial services people that can do that for you and certain types that can't. And they're not going to talk to you about necessarily about the things they can't do for you if they're on commission. They're going to chat up the, you know, the features and benefits of their products and services uh, I think a little bit more than some of the shortcomings of the business model. And one of the reasons, you know, I see, in my opinion, where the industry is slow to increase these standards of responsibility is in part because the system, like if you tell a financial services person that can't change anything, that they have an obligation to do all this stuff, then you better change the system around them to make that possible. Otherwise, you're giving them a responsibility, but no ability to act on it. And that's one of the reasons I think that there hasn't been this dramatic movement towards increased responsibilities. Thank you very much, uh, Rod. You've given me a lot of things to think about. And the scenarios that you have described in regards to you know, the mutual fund dealer who couldn't act and what to do with the information and the moral dilemma that 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 um, dealer faced, I I saw the impact of that as a consumer. Uh, and I can tell you, I did my MBA in 2008, uh, just before the crash. And, mm. and uh, my, um, my professor, the accounting professor, uh, revealed to us in class that the market's gonna, it's gonna tank because of XYZ reasons. And I wasn't bright enough to understand it at that point, but it had to do with subprime lending and, and all that. So he was warning us <laughs> that the market was gonna tank. And so it just so happens that there were a few people in my group, in my cohort, who were also uh, financial industry people, as you call them. 
and uh and it's very funny because i had a i had a chat with that with that gentleman one of them and i asked what what do you think of what the professor just said and whether he knew or not or whether he wanted to say or not or whether he saw it or not his answer to me was don't worry about it and then the month later the the market tanked so I, I definitely see what you are talking about. I definitely have experienced that uh, as a consumer. Um, and so it, it makes me think that, you know, all the things that you've mentioned, the different tips that you've given us are, are great tips uh, for us to, to pay attention to. But I think at the end of the day, what I'm hearing from all this is be an educated consumer. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's the message I think I get out of this. And that's the type of message that I've been pushing in my podcast for a long, long time is that as consumers and as physicians, we cannot just delegate and give away. We have to in somehow learn, you know, the basics of this and also take control back of, you know, what we can control. Of course, we cannot control the market. Of course, we cannot control the interest rate, but there are certain things we can control and there are certain things we can learn to protect ourselves a little bit better. I agree. Yeah, education is so critical. You know, I, I in some respects, I feel bad for those financial services people like the one you just referenced from your class who said, don't worry about it. Uh, a lot of those people are, because they can't go and make all these changes for their clients, they're actually taught to tell their clients things like, don't worry about it. These are not your numbers. Um, you know, the, the market will go up and down, but you're not retiring for 20 years. So don't think about it. And in part so that you just stay put. The, the, best, the best situation for the financial services industry is if everybody put their money someplace and just left it alone. And they, and they recoup all the fees and do as little work as possible to get that. To actually have a system that's moving people in and out of various equities. And there are people out there that do it. And they, and they, you know, they, and some of them, you know, they could be good at it or not. I don't know, but there's a great number that can't do that kind of stuff. You know, it's one of the reasons I only work with portfolio managers myself personally on the public market stuff. Um, I'm hoping in the future, and, and maybe this is a topic you've already covered, but a lot of what we've talked about today are really advisors and, and professionals in the public market space. The entire universe of public market or private market investments, that's the area that I've been specializing in. The dealerships that I own focused on that. My, my work as an analyst focused on that. That universe of private investments, it, there's so much in there that, in my opinion, is way more compelling than public market. And most consumers are not adequately introduced to those types of products, in part because I think the financial services industry is large, at large, the big institutions out there, they don't like they don't want consumers to get excited about that stuff. That's not their business model. And so they are not given the information. Nobody encourages them to leave the bike store and go buy a skipping rope, you know, down the street, even though the skipping rope could be awesome. You know, they just, they're not encouraged to go look at that. So maybe one of these future uh, interviews, we could talk a little bit about the professionalization of the private market space in Canada and where that, you know, might create some really interesting possibilities for consumers. Absolutely. I, I'm going to take you up on it and I, I hope you won't turn me down next time. Uh, I did have a podcast on exempt market products and private uh, private investments uh, very early in my podcast, but I think it's time to revisit that. But looking at it from a different uh, perspective and, and with your lens to it, uh, and I think it's important for, for people to learn about you know the exempt market and private equities 
uh, if the big institutions and the pensions are doing it, we should at least know why they are doing it. So I think it's a great topic to revisit for sure. Excellent. So Rod, thank you very much for for coming on the show and giving us uh, little tips and, and golden nuggets. I find them to be golden nuggets. So I, I thank you very much for that. If there was one question, one a message that you want to send out to my audience today, you know, it's burning off your chest, you must say it before we leave this podcast. What would that be? You know, I, I keep keep listening to alternative sources of information like VU on these topics. Um, if you just keep going to financial services people to, to get, you know, information, they're, they're, they're going to just give you what they want you to hear. And it won't necessarily be the full story. So that part of your becoming better consumers is by, you know, paying attention to these kinds of podcasts and getting these kinds of perspectives on things. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Rod. Uh, and uh, you're in Calgary, not in Toronto. So I'll remember that for next time. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for listening this far to this particular podcast on the topic of standards of suitability versus best interest. I hope that it has provided you some food for thought and hopefully it will jog and trigger some reflection on your part to figure out whether you are dealing with an advisor or an accountant who is providing best interest or suitability only. And it's not easy to figure out unless you understand the incentives and unless you understand what are the different options you have. Are you dealing with a bike salesman or are you dealing with a personal trainer? This is something you need to figure out. The earlier you got this figure out, the better it is for you. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast and this discussion with Rod. If you have, please share it with your colleagues, with your friends, with your neighbors, with your cats and dogs. And uh, please stay tuned for our next podcast. Thank you very much. How is my financial health doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.